0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart before we begin our study of God's word this morning we need to make sure we are ready to focus and concentrate wake up a little bit I, everybody's got a bleary eyes look like everybody either all the the high pollen count has nailed everybody in the last couple of days or or everybody went out and celebrated Mother's Day last night until two in the morning so let's uh, take a few moments for silent prayer to Use first John one nine if necessary, pull our concentration skills together so we can focus on God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity that we have to gather together this morning to study your word. We are reminded that it is in your word that we are told, that it is in thy light that we see light. This means that it is your word that is true and accurate, it is your word that is sufficient, and it is your word that informs us of how we are, our basic nature, how we are created, how we are to relate to you, and how we are to relate to one another. And it is within the framework of what you have revealed to us that we must understand and interpret the details of life around us. Now, Father, we continue to pray for our nation at this time as well, that they may, we may remain secure, that our president and other leaders might guide and direct us wisely in this war against terrorism. We pray that you would continue to watch over those in the military who are on active duty from this congregation and away from home, whether it is here in the United States or overseas, we pray that you would keep them safe and secure, that you would be with their families and encourage and strengthen them during this time of separation. Father, we pray for us now as we look at your word that we might uh, have the objectivity to understand what your word says, that we might uh, submit to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there is probably no other social issue addressed by the Bible today that generates any more controversy or visceral emotion or misunderstanding or challenge or downright anger than what the Bible teaches about the roles of men and women in the home, in the church, and by implication in society. In fact, there are many Segments of evangelical Christians today who have in effect taken out their razor blades and removed several chapters from the Bible simply because they do not like what the Bible teaches. I don't think there's anything that probably strikes home more than what is taught in some passages, specifically for the passage we're about to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because of the way the evangelical church has approached much of Bible study in the last 20 or 30 years where we have been so heavily impacted by the thinking of the culture around us, and that's probably not any different today than at any other time in history, but in our culture as we've seen a fragmentation of the home and a and a distancing of ourselves from some traditional values that were based on scripture, what we've seen is that people reinterpret the Bible and change the teaching of the Bible so much that what happens when somebody comes along and starts teaching what the Bible actually says, interpreting the scriptures literally within a historical grammatical framework, the Bible suddenly seems to be archaic, outdated, and irrelevant. People react quite emotionally at times to that and quite subjectively when when you face what the Bible teaches on this subject. And this is really an indication of the fact that we have imbibed of cosmic thinking so much in the souls that we just are so distanced culturally and on a day-to-day basis in our society from what the Bible teaches that often you hear people say, well, that's just not practical. That's not realistic. How in the world can we even put this into Scripture? On the other hand, you run into situations today where so many people have taught the uh, view that the Bible teaches has been caricatured or distorted by some people. That when the truth is taught, what happens is the person in the pew hears certain phrases or hears hear certain terms, and rather than listening to what the Scripture says, what's happened is these terms have been have taken on such a negative or pejorative connotation due to the way it's been. They've been hammered. By the feminists in our society and by other other groups, that instead of hearing what the Bible says, they hear a caricature and they, and that has been that is a major problem in trying to communicate to congregations what the scripture teaches in this area and this is not new this was the same problem Paul was addressing in first Corinthians and why he is addressing this issue of the role of men and women in the worship service, and in society, because the subject that we're addressing here was just as controversial in his day as it is today, and this is something that I've emphasized a few times as we've gone through Corinthians, but too often we get this idea that somehow the culture back then wasn't that distance from what uh, was being taught in the scriptures, and yet what Paul was teaching was just as much a challenge to people living in a Greek culture, a Roman culture, or a legalistic, Judaistic culture as it is for people living in a 20th century or 21st century American culture. Now, to understand the things that are said here, the first thing we have to do is to spend some time looking at the background of the text, look at the culture, the context of 1 Corinthians. So we're going to be applying all of the basic skills in Bible study and in teaching that are important. First of all, looking at the context of 1 Corinthians 11. Second, looking at the cultural background, both in terms of Corinthian culture, Greek culture, the background of Roman culture, and the background of of, uh, the culture of Judaism, out of which Paul came. And then we're going to be looking at the some of the historical aspects, all of which we cover under the term isagogics. And remember, the key to Bible study is what we call the ICE method, I-C-E for isagogics, categories, and exegesis, not in that order. You start with isagogics. Isagogics gives you the framework, both historical and literary, for understanding any particular passage. That is the That is the framework. Then you do your exegesis. And then as you do your exegesis, you discover the categories that God the Holy Spirit has embedded within the text. You don't bring categories to the text. The text itself outlines those categories. So we are going to take a very precise and methodical approach to this study. And the key verses here run from verse 2 down through verse 16. And these are some of the more controversial verses written in the Scriptures. And we're going to have to deal with some some of them in some detail. We won't get very far on this first lesson on this chapter. We probably won't get beyond uh, verse 3 because that lays down the basic uh, foundation for everything said from 4 through 16. Now let's remind ourselves of what's going on in Corinthians. Paul was faced with various problems within the church. These are social problems at their core level. They've got divisions in the church. In those first five chapters, we saw that he was dealing with the problem of cliques and divisions and the development of basically personality cults within the congregation. They hadn't split wide open yet. But just like the Greek culture around them, they had brought these ideas with them into the church, and the idea was that you usually associated or identified yourself with some personality, some teacher, some... Individuals, some school of thought, and so they were identifying themselves with Peter. Some were saying they were of Apollos, others were saying they were of Paul, and others were saying they were of Jesus. We don't have anything any different today. People come into the church with all kinds of cultural baggage, all sorts of ideas and values that have been uh, bred into them, brainwashed into them, inculcated into them by one means or another because of their family, their, their uh, cultural background, their religious background their peers, their friends, the general political culture of the day. And so just like the Corinthians had to completely renovate their mind and Paul had to correct them, the same thing is true today. We have to be corrected in our understandings of so much of this so that we can do what the Bible says to do. Now, one interesting thing I pointed out as we went through those first five chapters, as Paul faced personal, as Paul faced problems of relationships in the church, Paul didn't solve the problem by saying, "Okay, we need to bring everybody together. We need to understand uh, the backgrounds. Let's understand the family dynamics of each individual, where they came from, what their family dynamics were." We need to have a little psychological input here, some sort of sensitivity training or group counseling therapy, which would be the way it would be handled today. You could get a church, and there's some splits in the church. Let's get the key people together and have some uh, uh, diplomatic uh, counseling together. Well, that's not how Paul addresses a problem. Paul addresses a problem spiritually. From a biblical viewpoint, all relationship problems... Ultimately boil down to a spiritual or doctrinal issue. Whatever the problem is, somewhere, whether it's a marriage problem, whether it's a problem between people who are working together, whether it's factions in a local church, ultimately the problem is going to boil down to somebody is not applying the principles of Scripture. They're operating on arrogance. They're operating on hypersensitivity. They're operating on subjectivity. They're just operating on pure carnality, power lust, approbation lust, or some other lust pattern. But the problem has to be addressed doctrinally, and that is how Paul handles the situation in the first five chapters. Then beginning in chapter 6, Paul began to address specific issues. He began to answer questions that had been asked of him. Apparently a letter was sent from Corinth to Paul, and in that letter they asked him to deal with specific issues, and so we saw that... In terms of the literary structure of the epistle, Paul began to answer these, uh, actually in chapter 7, with the phrase peri-day in the Greek, now concerning. And this would indicate a break each time he changed subjects. For example, in chapter 8, it starts with now concerning things, or peri-day in the Greek. But in chapter 11 there's a shift, but there's no Perry Day. In fact, we don't get the next Perry Day until chapter 16, but there's a clear topic shift at the beginning of chapter 11 in verse 2. Actually 11:1 is uh, belongs with the discussion from 8 uh, starting in 8:1 and the chapter break is just in the wrong place. The chapter break should come between 11:1 and 11:2. And in chapters eight through eleven, Paul began to deal with this issue, this, this gray area of doubtful things and meat sacrificed to idols. And we've spent two or three months uh, exegeting our way through chapters eight through ten. In beginning in chapter ten, Paul began to bring up certain issues related to eating and drinking. It's talked about the people eating and drinking and the the, the Jews in verse seven. He brings up the idea of communion, starting in verse sixteen, the cup of blessing, the communion of the fellowship of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break that began to introduce certain ideas in his thinking as he 's writing the letter related to the public worship of the church. Now, in chapter eleven, he shifts from dealing with the question related to the things sacrificed to idols, and now he's going to insert some positive instruction in verses 2 through 16 and some corrective instruction in verses 17 and following related to problems in the public worship of the church. This whole section begins here in 11.2 and it goes through the end of chapter 15 and the focus is on assembly worship and organization of assembly worship and how people should conduct themselves in the public assembly of the church. In other words, we're going to look at how doctrine impacts public social behavior. How doctrine impacts public social behavior. In chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, the focus is on the role of women in assembly worship. In verses 2 through 16, the focus is on the woman's role in assembly worship. In verses 17 to the end of the chapter, the focus is on communion. The focus is on how they should handle communion, and there they were mishandling communion, and so there is a strong element of correction and rebuke there. That's not true in verses 2 through 16, and we'll see why in a minute. And then beginning in chapter 12 through 14, Paul moves to the role of spiritual gifts and the operation of spiritual gifts in the public worship. And then in chapter 15, he deals with the importance of the doctrine of resurrection and how that applies also in the realm of public worship. So chapters 11 through 15 operate as one unit as what unit dealing with principles of <coughs> public worship and then in chapter 16 we have our last section where he deals with the with the principle and the doctrine of giving and handling of finances so starting this morning we're going to look at chapter 11 2 through 16 and the role of women and men in public worship and this is going to have tremendous implications for the role of men and women in marriage, and by implication in society as a whole. So we have to look at this, and we have to understand what the Scripture says, and we have to deal with this also in the context of the attacks that are being made on this chapter from especially the feminist left and the so-called evangelical feminists. That's sort of an oxymoron. Anybody who's a real evangelical couldn't be a feminist. So we have to understand this in light of of the context and culture of that time as well as the exegesis and understanding of how these words and terms are used within the scriptures. Let's begin at verse 1 to pick up the context. There Paul says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now actually this verse concludes the previous section, and Paul is saying to imitate him in so far as that's the idea there, not just just it's not simply just as, but he's saying imitate me in so far as I also imitate Christ. That's the summary of everything he has said in verses eight to eleven is that he at some areas in his life where he has achieved spiritual maturity and is applying this doctrine, they are to imitate him insofar as he is imitating Christ. And that brings in the idea that the Christian leader is a role model, but a role model only insofar as they are imitating Christ. Always we are to put our eyes on Christ and not on people, because people always fail. The apostle Paul failed. Timothy failed. John, The apostle John failed. Every pastor fails. And if you imitate them in every area of their life, you're going to end up in failure, too, and in a lot of disappointment over the individual. The focus here is to imitate Paul only in far as he was applying doctrine in his own life. Then he shifts in verse 2 to the new topic. Now I want you to notice a contrast between verse two and verse seventeen in verse two he is positively praising the Corinthians. He says, "Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me <coughs> that you you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver to you." So he has been correcting them again and again in the first five chapters. there's been a heavy handed Uh, correction to some degree in chapters uh, 7 through 10. And now he is praising them. But this praise, in one sense, is just setting them up for a strong uh, rebuke starting in verse 17. Notice the contrast. In verse 2 he says, now I praise you. And then in verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. So he is going to lower the boom in verse seventeen, so verse, verses two through sixteen are apparently providing a, some instruction that was not given when he was in Corinth, some instruction in some areas that they had not received instruction in yet, so this is new information, but it is information related to problems that are developing that he has heard developing, that he has heard are developing within the public worship in Corinth. And this would be as a result of the fact that they are bring, they brought with them this baggage from their religious background, from their cultural background, as to how uh, men and women are to function within a within the worship service, how they are to function in society, and so he has to uh, address this. This, of course, brings in an area that is just as controversial today. ...as it was in that day, and so we have to spend a lot of time understanding various different uh, dynamics... ...both at that time and today to properly understand and apply this scripture within the framework of public worship. Let's begin by looking at our verse in verse 3. Paul says, but I want you to... uh, ...or verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. He begins with a positive statement of praise to them as brethren. By calling them brethren, he indicates that he views them all as fellow members of the royal family of God, that he views them as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are adopted into the royal family of God, and we become members of the same family. So we are, he starts off using this term brethren to indicate as an address to everyone in the congregation, male and female, and it brings in the implication that we are all equal members of the royal family of God. He praises them because they remember him in all things. It should be translated because it is the causal use of the Greek particle hati, this means that you remember me in all things. That is, they are praying for him, and they remember him continuously in prayer, and they are remembering him, in when even though they had problems with his authority in Corinth, they are remembering him, and that was indicated by the fact that they even addressed a letter to him with the various questions that they were asking. First, he praises them for remembering him, and secondly, because they keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now the Greek word, in fact Paul uses a little pun here, the Greek word for, tra- for traditions is the word paradosis, paradosis, looks like this in the Greek, p-a-r-a-d-o-s-i-s, paradosis. Now, paradosis means that which is passed along by teaching. That which is passed along by teaching, and it came comes to mean and to be translated as traditions. That which has been accepted, it's been taught historically, and has been accepted as a standard operating procedure. Now, in the structure of his verse here, Paul says, I... (coughs) Praise you because you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. And here he uses the word, the Greek word paradidomi, P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I. And paradosis is a form of paradidomy. So it's a little pun, a little play on words, which indicates that Paul hasn't lost his sense of humor, even though he's having to correct a lot of behavioral problems among the church in, in Corinth. So he has a little pun here and says, I delivered these traditions to you. Now, for a lot of folks, traditions, tradition is a bad idea, especially young people. They want to do something New. They like doing doing things new, and they just think, oh, old people are just so traditional. They just have to do everything the same way. You see this application when it comes along to music sometimes, especially uh, in a church like ours where we believe in singing the old hymns, not because they're old, not because it's something we've always done, but because there is a difference between most older hymns and most of the newer so-called praise music. And it boils down to to some important doctrinal principles. And it's not always old versus new. That's always a caricature that uh, always aggravates me when somebody responds that way and says, well, you just like old music and not new music. Well, a lot of modern music is the result, and music always changes whenever your, a worldview changes. That's sort of a uh, general principle of history, that whenever a, a culture shifts its basic philosophy and orientation, the music changes. Now, so therefore, mu- that recognizes the principle that music reflects core values about the ultimate, uh, uh, how a culture views ultimate reality. So, we have to evaluate music on its own, and we have to evaluate the words and many of the words in contemporary praise course are very subjective the orientation of the of these praise courses is all about "I want to praise you God, oh what you've done for me," and over and over again it's it's very first person oriented if in contrast, even though there's first person in various uh Traditional hymns as well. They are, it's a reflection upon the doctrine. And you look at a hymn like a Mighty Fortresses Are God, many other hymns, there's a reflection by the writer upon doctrinal themes. And it's not just sort of a, a, a one note theme running through the, the chorus. So the issue really isn't old versus new. When we come to think about tradition, it is not just old versus new, in fact, one of the worst things, worst traps any church or for that matter, any organization can get in is that they don 't have new blood coming in, new ideas, new and improved ways of doing things. there oftentimes are better ways of doing many different things with any organization and but the issue isn 't just old. Verse is new, and the Bible never looks at it that way. In fact, the Bible does have some negative things to say about tradition, but that is because these traditions are non-biblical. For example, the traditions of the Pharisees are condemned; they're not biblical. It's not because they're traditions; it's because they're not based on consistent biblical, uh, consistent Bible doctrine. On the other hand, some traditions are praised positively, just as Paul says this. There are doctrinal principles that were delivered once for all to the saints in the first century, and we are to consistently apply those throughout the centuries. And in that sense, those traditions are positive not because they're old, not because that's the way we've always done it, but because that is consistent with Bible doctrine. But the worst mentality I think the church can come up with, in fact, one writer once said, "The seven called it the seven last words of the church. And the seven last words of the church are, we never did it that way before. Whenever you catch yourself saying that, you ought to think about taking out a knife and cutting out your tongue. We never did it that way before. There's always better ways to do it. In fact, one of the important things we ought to recognize as a, as a principle is that a culture that is advancing is always improving itself. It's always challenging itself to a higher standard and always going forward and is never satisfied with doing it just the way it's been done before. This applies to a nation. It applies to a business. It applies to a church. It applies to a family. There are always areas in which we can improve the things that we do. In our prep school, there are always ways we can improve what we do in teaching our kids. Just because we never did it that way before doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it that way. We should always be open and responsive to new ideas that are challenging us to improve whatever it is we're doing to make sure that our quality is advancing. Remember, we're to do everything to the glory of God, and we never arrive this side of heaven. So... We don't want to fall prey to the trap of we never did it that way before. Uh, A church always advances. If it's interested in going forward, if it's interested in improving, then it's open to new ideas. It's open to evaluating the way it's done things because cultures change. The way we did certain things in 1970 don't necessarily work in the year 2003. The content doesn't change. But the culture around us has changed. A classic example would be that in, a, a, let's say, a 1920s, 1930s culture, out of which many traditions in fundamentalism and evangelicalism were started, the culture that churches were addressing in the United States in the 1920s and the 1930s was a culture that was still fairly homogenous in the United States. You look around today, even in a, even in a, a remote, rural, out-of-the-way place like Preston City, you can drive around Preston City, and we're seeing more and more Asians and Indians and Africans and Haitians uh, in all kinds of places, and even a, a place that has been traditionally pretty, pretty much of a homogeneous white environment like southeastern Connecticut is radically shifting and changing, and in another five years, this place is going to look radically different than it did uh, 15 years ago. So we live in a world that has changed a lot, but in the 20s and 30s, the United States of America was still fairly homogenous, especially in, re- in religion. It was almost exclusively Christian in some sense or another. Even in its broadest sense, even in terms of liberal Christianity, it was still, in some sense, Christian. Nowadays, we have enormous numbers of Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims. We live in a completely different world. In the 20s and 30s, uh, much of this nation was still fairly establishment-oriented. They understood authority. So the things that you did in terms of reaching uh, young people, uh, challenging them with the gospel were forms and structures that worked within that kind of a structure and that kind of environment. But we live in a completely different world today, and kids are different, their values are different. In in the 20s and 30s, you lived in a world that that still uh, idolized or still enthroned science, And it was a very rationalistic world and an empirical world, and that was most evident within the uh, non-Christian or liberal Christian religious environment. They operated on the sense that, well, if it doesn't really make sense to me in terms of reason or logic, then it must not be true. And so liberalism was coming along, and they were rejecting the miracles of the scripture, rejecting anything supernatural in the scripture. And that was the context in which we were addressing truth. But by the 1990s, with the New Age movement and the shifts that took place in the 60s and 70s, that kind of rationalism that was purely and totally anti-supernatural had been rejected. And we lived in a culture that was seeing the supernatural everywhere. And they were believing in the supernatural, and superstition was reigning supreme, and people were mystical even if they weren't uh, uh, involved with some sort of formal religious system. They had become very mystical in their orientation. We live in a different world, so in order to uh, <coughs> teach... People and to express the gospel in that culture, there are certain things that are modified. They're not absolutes. They are, they're, they are the relative things. They are not the major issues. And so we can maintain doctrinal purity, but we have to adapt to the changing environment around us. So that is why we have to be careful about this concept of tradition. In the one sense, we can get locked into doing things a certain way all the time, and that is a prescription for certain death. On the other hand, we have to make sure that when we do make changes, that we are changing only in those areas that are not grounded in doctrine. You don't want to change practices that are not not grounded in doctrine. There are always certain cultural relatives, but you never want to change the things that are built on doctrinal absolutes. So Paul addresses them and says, You have been keeping the traditions as I delivered to them, the traditions related to the church as they were taught by the Apostle Paul when he was in Corinth. Now, the emphasis here on tr- whenever you study tradition is the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, that the, the traditions of Scripture are to be maintained, because the Scripture is sufficient to solve an, any problem in life and to address any issue in life. No matter what the problem may be, you go to the Scripture for the solution, because the Scripture presents absolutes, not things that are culturally relative. The problem is that when you come to the next verse, and you begin to discuss the role of men and women, the attack today is that these are really cultural relatives. They were culturally determined by Paul's background. They were culturally determined by just what was going on in Corinth. But what Paul says in verses 3 through 16 is not based on doctrinal absolutes. So this is the heart of the controversy. Now, in this controversy, there are a number of questions that are being raised today in many, many churches, in fact, probably most churches in this country, and these are questions which we need to answer in the coming weeks. First question, can a woman be ordained? That is, ordained as a pastor. Second, can a woman have the gift of pastor-teacher? Is that possible? Or even, can a woman have the gift of teacher? Fourth, can a woman teach a An audience that is comprised of both men and women? Can a woman teach an audience that is comprised of both men and women, even if it's not in a church setting? I mean, you can turn on television and you can see a number of uh, women who are teaching Bible studies in not technically church settings. They're just going around teaching in various places, but they're teaching the Word of God. And you look at the audience and it is a mix of men and women. Is that valid? You can even ask the question is it right for a man to go sit in a church or is it, or in some setting where a woman is teaching the bible is that valid or is that a sign of some sort of rebellion on the part of the male Another question we should answer is what about reading if we ask in Building on the former question, can a woman teach a mixed sex audience? We should ask, the qu- or, or should men listen to a woman teach the word? We should answer the question, what about reading a commentary that's been written by a woman? Or even further, what if you go down and you're in, you're in, a, in a teaching Sunday school and you get curriculum? that was written by a woman, and you're using that curriculum, you're reading that curriculum as a man, and they're teaching the Word, is that valid? Is it valid for women to write curriculum for Sunday school classes? I'm thinking more in terms of adult Sunday school classes that <coughs> would be used to address a mixed audience. See, this isn't simple. There's a lot of complexities to this in our world today. And then the final question we should answer is, should a woman teach a woman's Bible study? Is this authorized in Scripture? So these are a lot of issues, and we're not going to answer them in simply a one-hour class because we have to lay a doctrinal foundation before we ever begin to answer these questions. Furthermore, another question that is implicit in the assault on 1 Corinthians 11 is the question, should some letter that was written 2,000 years ago to an obscure small congregation in Greece, control the practices of churches in 21st century America. These are the issues. We need to begin at verse 3. Remember the core issue here is the attack is is asserting that whatever Paul says in relationship to the role of men and women in the church that that was culturally determined. That whatever else they say no matter how they try to structure their arguments the those who oppose the apostle Paul here and reject what he says here are saying that what he is saying is culturally determined. I find it interesting that that in many cases they don't they don't dispute the literal interpretation. What they dispute is its validity for today or and and its doctrine and its existence as a doctrinal absolute. They want to address it as some sort of cultural relative. So let's begin by looking at verse 3. Paul doesn't start with the issue itself. He starts with the Godhead. He starts with the Trinity. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to notice that there are no culturally relative terms here. There's nothing here that is related to a Greek culture or a Jewish culture or any other culture. He says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. Christ is not a culturally relative term. Notice he doesn't say every man in Corinth. Neither does he say every man in the church in Corinth. He uses a universal phrase. He says the head of every man. Is Christ. Then he says, the head of woman is man. He uses singular nouns here because a singular noun is used to stand for an entire class of individuals. A singular noun is used for an entire class of individuals, and that indicates they are being written as a universal precept and not as a culturally conditioned term. And then in the third phrase, he says, the head of every the head of Christ is God. And again, this is these are not culturally relative terms. Christ and God are not culturally conditioned. In fact, this final phrase is one of the most profound statements about the relationship of God the Son to God the Father. Now, as we look at this issue, as we look at this issue, I want to outline for you at the very beginning, Some arguments that are raised against accepting this, the literal interpretation and application of this passage. These are six arguments that are usually set forward by what is called the egalitarian view. Well, (coughs) when we look at the scripture, or we look at what's going on today actually, there are basically three groups, three groups of, of people who are interpreting this passage. One group is called the egalitarians. This is the egalitarian view. An egalitarian view comes from the idea of being equal, that men and women are not only equal, but their roles are interchangeable. Now, those are two completely different ideas that but that they have equated them, that equality means that their roles are completely interchangeable, 100% interchangeable. The second view is the what I will call, for lack of a better term, sort of the traditionalist view. And the third view is a view called the complementarian view. Now, the traditionalist view and the complementarian view are similar in many areas. See, one of the issues that comes up, a question that that I did not put in the initial questions is, is it okay for a woman to pray in the public assembly? Is it okay for a woman to get up in the pulpit and read Scripture in a public assembly? Is it okay for a woman to teach the Word in a public assembly? Can a woman do some things in a public assembly, but not other things in a public assembly. In the traditionalist view, the traditionalist view would say a woman can't pray in the public assembly, can't read scripture in a public assembly, can't do anything in the public assembly. They can't be in a position as a deacon or, uh, or a pastor, and they can uh, only uh, teach, under, teach the word under s- certain restricted concepts. And there are many traditionalists who would say that women are not authorized to teach the word In any setting, except maybe to children. In the complementarian view, their view is that women are merely restricted from teaching the Scriptures in any setting, except maybe to children. Teaching the Scriptures in any setting. But they are able to pray, and in the first century to prophesy in the local assembly because neither the act, or even one could say to read scripture, because none of these activities implied any kind of authority. None of these activities implied any kind of authority. They were simply... They could pray, they could prophesy, they could read Scripture, and that seems to be the indication from this passage. So these are the three views that you face today. Everybody's coming from one view or the other. Now, the egalitarian view is the view that is attacking the traditional and complementarian views, which understand Paul to be restricting, in some sense, what women can do in a local congregation. So I want to look at six arguments that are advanced in support of the egalitarian view. The first comes from what Jesus does in Matthew 19, verse 4. Let's turn over to Matthew 19:4 and see what takes place here. This is a well-known passage where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees about divorce and marriage. Matthew 19, verse 4, the Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Now, just as a side point, I want you to notice that when Jesus answers the question, He quotes from two different verses. The first verse is in Genesis 1, and the second verse is in Genesis 2. And he pulls them together as if there is no conflict between the two. See, liberals always want to say that Genesis 1 is one account of creation, Genesis 2 is another account of creation, and they are uh, contradictory accounts. But Jesus is pulling a quote from both chapters and treats them as as a single, coherent, Unity. But when he answers the question on divorce, rather than going to uh, Deuteronomy 24, which is in the Mosaic Law, Jesus goes back to the original creation. And the argument of the egalitarians is that what Jesus is really doing is going to the spirit of the law and not the actual statement of the law. Therefore... What they are saying is that what we have to do based on this precedent is look at the spirit of the New Testament in terms of equality and not look at the letter of the New Testament. And if you're interpreting 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2 and uh, statements in 1 Corinthians 14 as well in a literal way, then you're just completely missing the spirit of the New Testament. So we have to recognize that Jesus here is not contradicting the law passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. He continues to express God's original, original intention for marriage in comparison to the concession that was made because of the fall. In, and that concession is given in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So there's not a contradiction there. He's not saying Moses was wrong. Let's go back to the spirit <coughs> of the law. He's saying that Deuteronomy 24 actually deals with the concession God made because of the fact that man has fallen. So there's some inherent problems with the way they use Matthew 19.4. A second argument they use to support their view is based on Joel 2.28 based on Joel 2:28 so let's turn back to the old testament to Joel this is one of the minor prophets it's the third of the minor prophets hosea our second minor prophet hosea joel amos hosea joel amos daniel comes before hosea daniel and then hosea and then joel chapter 2 verse 28 this is a context related to the Day of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. And in that passage, Joel says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And their argument is that in this passage, When the Holy Spirit is poured out, men and women equally communicate the truth. That's the argument. Men and women will equally communicate the truth that in the end times, and we live in the end times, that's their argument. They're not making a distinction necessarily between the church age and the tribulation. That God doesn't make a distinction between men and women. His Spirit is poured out equally on both men and women. And so we shouldn't make a distinction. Uh, Women have the spiritual gift of prophecy, so they should use it. The problem with this particular view is that, first of all, it has an inadequate understanding of prophecy. One of the greatest problems you're going to run into if you ever try to try to study anything, is you, you will hear pastors teach that prophecy means preaching, that some prophecy has the idea of foretelling, but you will hear them wax eloquent on the fact that prophecy has two ideas: foretelling and forthtelling. And today, of course, the foretelling element isn't there, so all that's left is the fourth telling element. So they equate prophecy to preaching. The Bible never equates prophecy to preaching, and if you make that mistake, you've just undercut a tremendous amount of Scripture. In fact, I think you have major problems maintaining that position and a cessation of the sign gifts and the gift of prophecy to begin with. So we have to understand, and we will have to have a study on what prophecy actually is, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But to give you a preview, prophecy has to do with simply being a mouthpiece for God. Simply being a mouthpiece for God. The prophet said, Thus saith the Lord. The authority doesn't reside in the prophet himself. The authority resided in God. The analogy that I like to use is when I go to Russia or Ukraine, I've been to Kazakhstan, and I have a woman interpreter the authority isn't in the in the woman the authority is in me i'm the teacher i'm the one who's teaching the word she is simply a mouthpiece she is simply taking what i have said and and putting it into the language of the people and communicating that she is not inserting her own views her own ideas she's not expounding on what i'm saying she's just simply translating it into the language of the people. So there's no authority there. She is simply a mouthpiece. And that was what a prophet was. And you have clear uh, clear evidence of, of women as prophets in the Old Testament as well as in the early church. But at the same time, you have a prohibition in the New Testament for women teaching the word. So there is a clear understanding in the New Testament that there is a distinction between the action of prophesying and teaching. Prophesying was not authoritative for the individual. He is not expounding on the word. Okay, let's look at another incident that is used to, another argument used to support the egalitarian position. Turn over to, back to the Gospels in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, this is the incident with uh, Mary and Martha when Jesus comes to visit Mary and Martha the two sisters of Lazarus. And in Luke chapter 10 the argument is that in verses 38 to 42 Jesus Jesus gives a new emphasis on the role of women and he frees women from their traditional roles of of domestic tasks and drudgery. But is that what the passage is saying? Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her, her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. In other words, Martha's having to do all the domestic chores, all the cooking and cleaning and waiting on everybody, and Mary just said, Well, that's not important at all. I just want to sit and listen to what Jesus says. I need to take in doctrine. And so Jesus answered and said to, to Martha, 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 you're worried and troubled about many things but one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her and so the contention of the egalitarians is that that Jesus is elevating women in this passage to a new position he is allowing Mary as a woman to sit with the men and study the word and that's true that is shows that Jesus has a he, he has a tremendous ministry to women, showing the importance of women that cut across the culture, because women in a traditional Judaistic culture, were a, they weren't even a second-class citizen in many cases. They were more of a third-class citizen. They had to sit separated from the, from the men, and no rabbi could even talk to a, a woman on the street, not even his wife, lest someone who didn't think it, know that that was his wife get the wrong idea. So women were treated very poorly in traditional Judaism, and Jesus treated the women equally with the men. But notice, Jesus does not include any women among the disciples. He doesn't include any women among the 70 that he sends out. He never puts a woman in a leadership position. And even in the coming kingdom, which is the utopic state of all of human history, The leadership resides in the 12 male apostles. So even though Jesus does validate women in a new and better role uh, or position in society and treats them as essential equals to men, he still maintains a role distinction for women. They are not put in any leadership positions, neither does he ever authorize them to teach the word the fourth argument that is set forth against paul is to argue that paul is simply arguing from his own limited cultural perspective that paul is simply arguing from his own limited cultural perspective and this is just paul's opinion and paul let's face it they'll say was just a misogynist he hated women and you know every time i hear that it's all i can do to keep from hitting somebody uh, it shows obviously that that people don 't read the scriptures. What Paul says about women in some places was just as antagonistic to the culture at that day because he elevates them in many ways to positions of equality to men and and yet that 's always ignored for example, when he 's dealing with the problems of uh, sex in marriage in first Corinthians chapter eight, he said the the woman's body belongs to the man. Now, if he had stopped there, then you could say, yeah, Paul's a typical misogynist. He has the same cultural view of women as, as a standard Greek. But then he turns around and he says, and the man's body, the husband's body, belongs to the woman. That was radical. This is a man who is setting women up in many ways in certain areas as equal persons with men that ran completely counter to the culture. So the idea that Paul... Was just arguing from his own limited cultural perspective, ignores a certain amount of biblical data, but furthermore, it ignores historical data. Paul was from Tarsus. He lived in Tarsus at least uh, the first 13 years of his life till he was bar mitzvah and went down to Judea to be trained for. for as a rabbi down in Judea, and then after he was saved, he went back to, to Tarsus for another uh, 10 or 12 years and lived in Tarsus, uh, making tents, running his business there. In Tarsus at the time, according to a writer by the name of Dio Chrysostom, according to him, Tarsus, the people in Tarsus had an extremely harsh attitude towards women that was not too different from the Taliban today. Women were required to wear uh veils over and covered their entire body and the only thing that was that could be seen was their eyes they just had little slits for eyes and a veil that covered their entire face that's the culture in which Paul grew up Paul is certainly not arguing or speaking from that kind of a cultural background so to argue that Paul is a just a teaching cult- culturally relative Uh, Values is to ignore and to reject historical information and other biblical information. Furthermore, it establishes dangerous implications for interpreting Scripture. Because if what Paul says about women is culturally determined, what about what he says about adultery? What about what he says about marriage or homosexuality or mental attitude sins? Well, we could just dismiss all of that and say, well, that's just Paul's opinion. That's just culturally relative. A fifth argument that is advanced is the idea that that Paul uh, was not consistent. Paul was not consistent. And what happens in the feminist literature is they all want to use Galatians 3:28 as the benchmark passage for interpreting everything else that Paul says. So let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. 2 Corinthians, then Galatians, then Ephesians. Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28, which is a passage dealing with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's a reference to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, which takes place at the instant of salvation. Then in verse 28 he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now the way the egalitarians try to argue for this is they say, Look, slavery was basically eradicated from the history of mankind because of the influence of Christianity. And therefore, even though there was still slavery in the early church, Uh, slavery was eventually eradicated, and so as a result of Christianity, there's no more, uh, there's no more slavery. Then they take that and they want to apply that to the next clause, that therefore there's neither male nor female, so this ancient view that there was some kind of inherent difference between men and women should also be eradicated. At least that's the structure of their argument. Their assumption is, that equality between people requires complete interchangeability of roles. But their methodological problem is is faulty because you never take one verse of Scripture and use that to... Interpret or reinterpret all of the other verses of scripture that relate to the same subject they have to all fit together, and they, they, they can 't make them fit together, so they say, well Paul was right in galatians three twenty eight but he 's wrong in first Corinthians eleven and in first Timothy chapter two eight through twelve well wh- wh- how can you say that what if he 's right in first Corinthians eleven but he 's wrong in Galatians three The problem is they misinterpret the significance of Galatians three twenty-eight, When Paul's talking about the fact that there is neither Jew nor Greek, in many other passages he emphasizes the fact that there are still Jews. They're still Jewish, even though they're believers. They are now the true Israel. They are the true Israel of God because they have trusted in Christ as Messiah. But they are members of the church, so that their Jewishness no longer is an issue. See, in the Old Testament dispensation, there was a difference between the way Jews and Gentiles could operate in the temple. Jews had access to God, Gentiles did not. There was also a distinction between the way the men and the women could approach God in temple worship. Only the men had the closest access to God. The same thing was true about Those who were slaves. If you were a slave, you did not have the same access to God as a free person did. And what Paul is saying here is that in Christ, there is complete equality of opportunity to access to God. Whether you are Jewish or Gentile, there is now no longer a distinction in terms of the spiritual life. Whether you're a slave or whether you're free, you both have equal access to God, and all of the same assets of the spiritual life in the church age apply. In the same way, your sex does not matter whether you are a male or a female. You have the same assets, the same access to God, and the same opportunities to grow to spiritual maturity. He is not talking in this passage about role distinctions. He is talking here about essential equality in terms of the spiritual life. But essential equality does not mean that there are not role distinctions. You see, role distinctions are evident in every walk of life. On every team, whether it's a basketball team, whether it's a football team, whether it is uh, uh, a team of two or a team of 50, on every team there are different roles, even though the individuals on that team all are equally talented. If you take a football team, you have a talented uh, running back. He may be more talented as a running back than the man you have as a quarterback. But the man who's the quarterback is the team leader. That's what the quarterback says. He doesn't have to. The, the running back can't say, "Well, you know, I can really play this game better than you can, so I'm not going to do what you say." See, there are role distinctions in order for the team to function effectively, and every team has role distinctions. But that does not mean the individuals on the team are unequal. And this is the issue that Paul begins to address in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 verse 3 which brings in the fifth and sixth issues there are arguments used against the uh, biblical view the fifth argument that's brought against the biblical view by the egalitarians is the idea that men and women were created functionally and essentially equal from the beginning in Genesis 1:26 and 27 and it's only because of sin ...that a hierarchy or a distinction enters in. But that is a complete misreading and misunderstanding of both Genesis 1, and 27 and Genesis 3:16. In fact, Genesis 1, and 27 says nothing about order, subordination, or roles. Genesis 2 does indicate that there is a subordination of role. The woman was created to be the helper for the man, and Adam names her. That's an act of indicating authority and leadership. Genesis 3.16 does not introduce the hierarchy. It's already introduced in Genesis 2. What Genesis 3 introduces is the distortion of the hierarchy. And then the sixth argument that they bring against the traditional view is the idea that the subordination of the Son to the Father, the subordination of God the Son to God the Father, is limited to just the period of the incarnation while he is on the earth. Now, they are right about one thing. They are right about the fact that how you view the relationship of God the Son to God the Father is integral to understanding how men and women are to relate to each other. Because every time Paul addresses male and female roles, he always relates it to the relationship of God the Son to God the Father. So next time, we will begin our analysis of 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, and we will begin to look at the issue of headship. What does that mean? Traditionally, it's been understood to mean authority, but modern scholars want to argue that it has the idea of origin and not authority. Are they right? Are they wrong? We'll find out next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the clarity of your your word as it addresses every area of our lives and tells us how to think about these areas in our lives, and it specifically gives us information related to the role of men and women, not only in public worship but also in the framework of marriage. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do to have eternal life is to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That means you believe that he died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and his death and his death alone is sufficient to provide you with eternal salvation. At the instant you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, you are born again. The Scripture teaches that God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are declared to be justified, and God the Father gives you eternal life. All of this happens instantaneously and simultaneously, and this salvation can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today, and that we would be responsive to the Holy Spirit's teaching. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.